as we've uh, done the last few weeks, we'll bring the Scripture kind of into the message. And so it's a little different than, than we're used to, but the last couple of weeks, have, it's kind of worked out nice. It wasn't uh, something I had planned. It just felt right, and I'm going to continue that practice this week as we enter our third and final week of revival as our series. Revival, uh, if you define it, if you just want to know what the word means without all the stuff that maybe we associate with it, it means to restore to life to restore to consciousness, or as you all did this morning, to wake up. I'm here. It's Sunday. Oh yeah, this is what I have to do this morning. Those kinds of things that, that call us back to attention. And we want revival for our lives, and when we, we want revival for the church. We want revival for the whole creation. Amen? And so we have to seek it out. We have to realize we're asleep, and we're all asleep in ways, because part of this faith, as we understand it in our Wesleyan tradition, is we say yes to God in our baptism, but that's just the beginning. The Holy Spirit then comes in and starts to wake us up for the rest of our lives to bring us into what we might use the word perfection or sanctification, or as we'll talk about it a little bit later in the sermon, to completion, because God wants to complete you into life. And so revival. And so week one, we focused on the Lord's requirement. We looked at Micah, and we held uh, the Sermon on the Mount next to it. And we're going to do that again as we have the last few weeks. But Micah approached the people Israel who were worshiping really meticulously, but they were ignoring what the Lord actually wanted. And so Micah, the prophet, says, The Lord, your worship's great and all, but what the Lord wants, what the Lord requires, is for you to love justice, God's justice. The justice that looks to the lowest and brings them up. Because that's what God does. That's what God did for them in Egypt. And then to embrace the faithful love of God, God's willingness to come to you where you are and to begin this process of awakening and love. And then live it so much that it reflects off of you. And then finally, Micah said, walk humbly with God. Walk humbly with God. This walk that goes the rest of our lives. It's a good thing, yes? And then when we're doing those things, then our offerings become an expression of holy favor that we have for God and that God then receives from us. But it starts with the requirement. Last week, we focused on evid, a Hebrew word that means worship and service. And so we compared Egypt, we compared where Israel was, and through Isaiah, uh, analyzed basically that in Egypt, they were servants, they were in servitude to Pharaoh, who made them evid as slaves versus then Moses led them out into the wilderness to put them into servitude to God, to Evid. But this servitude brings them to life. This one crushed them and ruined them. This one brings them to life and awakens them. And God wants us to worship all the time, not just Sunday morning. Amen? Is Sunday morning worship good? Oh yeah. If worship is a way of life, then God hears our worship. And so we strive for that. None of us are perfect. We're getting there. Amen? Today, it's really living in fulfillment. And this is a rabbinic term. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and he says he's come to fulfill the law in the section from the Sermon on the Mount. This is, to talk about fulfillment is to not talk about or to uh, contrast to abolishing. Right? These are terms in the Jewish world. If you abolish a law, it means you may even follow the letter of the law, but you've completely missed the point of the law. So for instance, one of the Ten Commandments says don't kill, right? So you may do lots of other terrible things to people without killing them. And you could say, I followed the law. But a good rabbi would say, you actually abolished the law. 
Whereas you fulfill the law, it means you go to the heart of the law and all that it means, which means if I even hate you and start to kill the relationship between us, I'm headed to the path of killing. The heart of the law to fulfill means you go much wider than the letter. So Jesus is bringing this, and we're going to talk about that compared to Deuteronomy, which is our first reading, but before we get there, a little setting. So the Deuteronomy is our fifth book in the, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. So Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero, second. Anyway, we had the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Moses went up the mountain, received the ten, and gave it to the people, and they were ten words that all were don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. All right? And Moses comes down and gives the people the law. It's in Exodus 20, if you want to look it up, but then is revised later in Deuteronomy 5, when it actually is turned into 11 commandments. But he says, if you want to be these new people, if you want to wake up, if you want life, if you want to be in right service, follow the law, the law, the 10 that Moses received. But the question comes up. The question comes up, because uh, let me look at the 10 laws, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about this real quick. So the laws are, and we can divide it into two groups, love God, first four. They are, don't serve other gods. They are, don't make anything else worship worthy in life. Don't make idols. They are, don't swear by God's name for your own purposes. If you claim that God's on your side, when it's really about you, you're taking the Lord's name for vanity. Number four is honor the Sabbath and remember that while in Egypt your worth was defined by how many bricks you made, in God, it's not. It's defined by your devotion. And then five through 10 or 11, loving others. Honor your parents, which the Jewish people understand means you love your children as well, that sacred relationship. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Do not desire someone else's spouse, and do not covet anyone else's stuff. Simple, right? Easy. Yeah. So inevitably, we wonder, well, what happens when someone breaks the law? What do we do? Or if someone kills my cousin, how do I rectify the situation? What exactly constitutes idol worship? Because I feel like some things that happen around me are idol worship, but other people don't think that it is. How do we define this? Well, then we have 600 questions that follow those three, to which we have all these other laws in Leviticus, and then are kind of revamped in Deuteronomy, but they all go back to the 10. They're all trying to live up to the 10 and the heart of what the 10 were all about. And most of us are raised in an environment um, that creates a framework for us. We all have a framework. You all have a way to see the world based on what you know, right? This is how mom did it, right? My dad used to say to my mom, you know, that's not how my mom cooks it. Not a wise thing to say. That's his framework. This is what macaroni is supposed to taste like, right? And we bring it into every aspect of our life. This is what's good. This is what's bad. This is what's acceptable and not acceptable. And we all operate from these frameworks. Now, most of us were raised in an environment where if you do something wrong, you earn a punishment, so when my four-year-old daughters, as beautiful and wonderful and awesome as they are, when they misbehave, they get punished because we want to teach them. If we study hard in school and we pay attention, take good notes, then we get what? We get a grade, we get diplomas, we get titles, we get all sorts of stuff if we do that. That's our, that's our framework. But sometimes it bleeds over into our faith. And so we think if we pray hard enough, our prayers will be answered. And if our prayers aren't answered, 
Maybe we didn't pray hard enough. We start to get a little confused. Or if we act right, we'll get a reward. And so if someone gets a punishment, well, it must mean they acted wrong, which is really what the whole book of Job's about. But that's for another day. All of this is based on a framework constructed by our culture. The culture of your tribe, by your surname, the culture of your town, your state, your country. So, for instance, if I go to Asia, so there are some countries if I belch after the meal, that uh, I'm going to be considered polite and having good etiquette. But I would never do it at my grandma's table. And I encourage you not to do it either. Amen? Grandma's out there going, don't you be doing that. So what determines if belching is acceptable? The culture, the framework, right? In one culture, it means something good. and the other, it's kind of rude. So our culture has a framework of autonomy and individuality. So we love it when people stand up on their own and, and live their own lives. Now, the culture of Jesus was not. It was one of being part of your group and being a good member of your group, and that comes first, which is a little strange for us, which is maybe why some of the scripture stories are kind of weird because they operate from a different framework. So if we rise above and assert ourselves as a leader, just like you know, every single Disney movie shows us, is the character rising up and doing something amazing because that's our culture, then we're good. But we, our culture isn't related always to the scripture and what we're actually asked to do. It doesn't make our culture bad. It's just different and our framework can confuse us. Our culture is about worth and value in our society being determined by how much you make and what you do, which is why we set an age limit of when you have to move out of your parents' house because it goes from okay to not okay to just plain rude, right? If you're in your 40s, you're living at your mom's home and you're not working a lot, you probably aren't spoken well of by people around you because you're not worth as much because you're not producing. Now, is that God's image or is that culture's? Culture's. It's our framework. And so Jesus' culture would say that your worth and value is determined by your tribe and your presence in it. So actually, it would be rude to not build on to your father and mother's house when you get married and raise your family right there. That would be rude. The houses just keep growing. Uh, prepare a place as a house with many places prepared because that's the culture. And so where autonomy and individuality, we see that there's something different going on in the culture. And Jesus' culture, it's how others see you that determines your worth. So if people see you as a good person, you are a good person and can believe you are a good person. Sometimes we try to do that to each other. All that to say, Deuteronomy. Moses has walked with the people, and he's speaking in Deuteronomy. And like a good pastor, he's been going on for 30 chapters, right? Just keeps going and going. It's okay to laugh at that. I'm making fun of myself. He stands with the people across the river from the promised land, and he's addressing them. And he's not going to be with them. He's getting ready to die. And so he tries to prepare them. They've left Egypt in many ways, but there's still a little bit of Egypt dwelling in them. Dwells in us all. And we wonder, are we really worth anything to God if we're not making something, doing something on our own? He's trying to address them and give them a new framework from which to operate and be a people with God as the king. And it looks very different than other frameworks and other kingdoms of the day. So let's hear Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. And I want you to hear it through this new framework that it's not about what you do, it's about who you're devoted to about following the commandments, not to follow the rules and, and answer to a slave driver, but to be led to life. Look here, today I've set before you life, good 
Then you will live and thrive, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them, I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you right now. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by clinging to him. That's how you will survive and live long on the fertile land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Choose life, Moses says. You get a choice. Choose life. Which brings us to Jesus acting as the new Moses in the Gospel of Matthew, who's giving them the new law on the mountain to give the fulfillment of the law given long ago, announcing the arrival of the reign of God. And in this reign, there is a way that life is meant to run. And it's really always been that way, but people have been reluctant to follow it. So, for instance, if my four-year-old wants to run through the parking lot, as a good parent, I'm going to tell her not to, right? If she chooses to, what might happen? Get hit, get hurt, get killed, right? That terrible thing that might happen is not a punishment. It's simply what happens when you don't operate in a way of life, when you don't follow rules that are built to keep you safe, to help you prosper. God is giving laws to help the people prosper. Jesus comes and announces on the Sermon of the Mount an entirely new framework, a new reign of a new kingdom, a new way of life, the way that, that I wish we could have lived from the beginning. But he came to fulfill the law completely so that we could enter into this new way. And with it brings all sorts of joy and, and goodness and what we call heaven. And if you rebel against it, it brings chaos and destruction and what we call hell. Now, there's, there's, more, there's lots going on here on different planes, cosmic and earthly. And, and all this language is talking about all of that. Jesus, when he gathers before the Sermon on the Mount, the, our first verse from two weeks ago, said Jesus saw the crowds and then sat down to teach them. And the disciples came near to hear him. Jesus sees the crowds and the disciples. They're different groups. The crowds follow. Something's going on with this guy. He heals. He does some things. That's kind of interesting. Is he leading a new rebellion? Who is this Jesus? But they stand back. The disciples come near. They know that Jesus has something they need. They want what Jesus has to offer. And they're devoted to it. Jesus speaks for the crowds to hear, but it's the disciples who come close to listen. And we've been hearing this kind of separation all through the gospel. So we hear about Pharisees and scribes. Uh, they're in the crowds. They're operating from a particular framework. And basically what they're doing, the way the story is told, is they're deciding if Jesus' framework is acceptable, if it fits within their framework. The framework that they have is about following the letter of the law. You can say all sorts of nasty things, but as long as you don't kill them, you're okay. Not all of them were like that, but some were. They know that they want to maintain their dignity, their identity in God, so they have to follow the law. The heart, well, 
People have different ideas, but follow the letter. They want to bolster and maintain this black and white view of faith. Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's unclean, who's a sinner and who is righteous. And they will kill anyone who threatens that framework. So when Jesus threatens it, they start conspiring to kill him. Also in the crowd are zealots and Sadducees, other Jewish groups. And they exist in the, they understand that there's a struggle between Israel being dominated and occupied by Gentile territories. And right now it's Rome. And this is God's land. We're God's people. So there's two responses we can do. We can either maintain and protect God's land and people by compromising, like the Sadducees did. They compromised. Or they can fight, like the Zealots did, picking up a sword and ready to go to war. All about this framework that it was up to them. Can you imagine different groups of people in one political reality having different perspectives? Jesus offers a teaching on the law that's outside of all those frameworks, which is why they all struggle. It's why we struggle, to understand it. We desperately want it to fit into our framework. And we will wonder, did Jesus really mean what he said? Because we're going to hear some scripture in a minute that says things like, give to anyone who asks of you, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Is this just an ideal that we lift up to know that we can't live it? So it's just a reminder that we're imperfect. Some people will try to explain it away in a framework like that. Or we may just say, well, I can live it for most people, God's people, but I can't live it for everyone, can I? And we wrestle with this. Most of the questions come from our unconscious framework. Some of us aren't really sure about this total forgiveness, love, and mercy stuff. We have a hard time accepting it for ourselves. And if we can't accept it for ourselves, how would we ever accept it for others? Some of us operate from the idea that living right simply earns us a prize. That all of this is really just to prepare to die. Some of us think our personal values are God's values. That if people don't see it our way, they must be lost. Some of us think our political perspective is obviously God's perspective. Of course it is. And on and on we go. You with me? Now, we may be saying, well, other people do that. But my friends, we need to awaken that we all do this. Let's hear the good news of Jesus Christ again. Several times in the Gospel of Matthew, the same message has been said by John, by Jesus, by the disciples. And I'm going to say it differently for you now. Reframe your thinking. For the reign of God is here. Now, in Jesus Christ and forever present through the Holy Spirit. You may be used to hearing it repent. Think of it as reframe. Reframe your thinking, friends. Wake up. Wake up to God's reign and rule that has come. It's, it was established 2,000 years ago. It began, all things are being renewed in Jesus Christ. Amen? You're being renewed. Amen? I'm being renewed. Amen? We are being renewed. They are being renewed. All creation, trees, dogs, sky, clouds, grass, rivers, it's all being renewed and we're all experiencing the birth pangs of this renewal. And so let us reframe our thinking and hear the fulfillment of the law through this very different way that's based on good news. Matthew 5, 48 says, You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. 
and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. And you must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. The word of God for the people of God. What if we became a people whose only framework was the kingdom of God? What if we realized and acknowledged that no other framework will hold up? None. 
None. It won't be long when all is restored. God, our triune God, is king right now. Abandon all other frameworks. Choose life. Choose life as God defines it and brings it into your heart. God, who completely or perfectly, depending on your translation, loves everyone, calls us to love everyone completely and perfectly. God perfectly loves us. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God is within us to revive us to an awakening that we may no longer be governed by any other framework. We are gods. All of creation is already gods. You can choose to reject this reign. You can choose to reject what Jesus came and taught and preached and embodied. You can choose to remain in your current framework. You can do that. There is safety in the familiar. But if you dedicate your life, if you strive to keep your life, you may just lose life in the end. Rather, if you seek to lose and leave your life behind, you may and will gain the life God has to offer you. Amen? Amen.